Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. My goal is to tell the real stories of law enforcement, the ones that don't make the news. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome B.C. Sanders. B.C. has been in law enforcement for 20 years. He is currently with a large agency in the southeastern United States. He's worked on many units, including drug unit, aggravated assault, homicide, gang, and more. He and his buddy Ski have an outstanding podcast called The Disruptors Podcast with BC and Ski, which we will definitely talk about. BC, I'm just going to welcome you now and have you bring in that Disruptors Podcast energy you have. (laughs) (laughs) I know what that means. That means, hey, BC, you talk a whole lot, so go ahead and start rambling (laughs) on. (laughs) Actually, you guys have such great energy and such Mm -hmm. great, I mean, chemistry, I guess is the word, and you crack me up. Well, we, well, thank you. We we crack each other up, and that's kind of where a lot of that energy came from, and the idea for the podcast. And you know, we went back and forth about names and all that. And and there is a history to the actual term, and we just try to keep it very simple and bring on some really interesting guests. And some episodes will just talk between us and not right. actually have guests. And a lot of that's based on input from what people say. Some people say we want to hear what it's like to work actual informants you know, working long-term cases, you know, maybe homicide investigations or proactive policing, which is going to be a future trend, which we know everything cycles. So some episodes, um, we've had band members on there from different punk rock bands and stuff. And we're always looking for more interesting guests. So if anybody has ideas, feel free to pitch them our way, but we just, we have fun with it and hopefully people enjoy it. And so far it's been pretty good. Yeah, it's it's great. I love it when you know you're like you're like Ski's dying to say something, and <laughs> yeah. you know uh, it's really good. We'll talk about it more mm-hmm. before we close. Okay. I thought I'd start with the you know I've done a lot of research on you already, mm-hmm. but how you got into law enforcement? Yeah, I didn't necessarily grow up wanting to be a cop. So I grew up just a little bit different than a lot of other police officers. I grew up skateboarding, listening to punk rock, going to shows in the pit, stage diving, meeting bands, you know, working on potential fanzine stuff. It just, it it was a different type of childhood compared to what maybe other cops have had. But then as I got older and experienced that I have to kind of make a decision in life, I got into the army fresh out of high school and did four years in an infantry unit and loved it. At the time, there wasn't all that much opportunity in the military. So I got out, went to college, got a psychology degree. And all I wanted to do by then was to become a police officer. And, and more, you know, down the road, I knew I wanted to get into investigations at one point had even leaned towards wanting to join a federal agency. But when I got on with the department I'm on now, I loved it. And I had a, a chief of police at the time that she was very proactive. And this was, you know, 20 years ago, but she was like, your, your job as a police officer is to go out there and actually arrest people that have guns on them or who are gang members or are committing violence in a neighborhood And you're going to know who they are because you're going to talk to the grandmothers and the citizens there who are working hard every day. And they've only got a few people in that neighborhood that are really messing it up. So we, I, I, myself and all my, my squad members and stuff, we were just empowered to be proactive that that this is your beat. This is your area. Own it and go after the most violent people and disrupt that cycle. Don't just sit in a parking lot, eating donuts and drinking coffee. I mean, that's (laughs) legit how it was. So now I think we're going to go into an era of seeing that come back. Because? 
Yes, because right now everything has gone reactive for several years. And what a lot of people don't know, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get on a soapbox too much about it, but all these major cities, the, the level of violence that has increased is astronomical. You can stop that. You have to empower police officers who you've hired and trained to be problem solvers. And sadly, if someone has to use deadly force or a use of force to make an arrest, you support them. And when you do and you empower them to go after the most violent people in the neighborhoods or you focus on gangs, you drive the violence down. That, I mean, that's a simple recipe. And it's amazing when you walk into a room as a leader and you tell officers, go out there, do just what I said that chief told us, you know, 20 years ago. And they actually go out there and do it. And then you see, oh, we just went from, you know, last quarter we had, you know, whatever, a 30% increase in shootings, 400% increase in homicides. And now that we've instituted a little bit of proactive measures, we're starting to see it go down, go down and go down. In a nutshell, that's what's going to happen in the next few years. You're going to see the trend to go back to proactive policing, pay raises going up, signing bonuses, bonuses for higher ranking officers to stay on their departments longer because you have a upper echelon that are just retiring early or they've hit their 20 or 30 year mark for their departments and they're retiring. They're not wanting to stay around. You're losing that knowledge. So right. you'll, you'll see that, that now it's a lot of money is going to be thrown at that problem. Right. Well, you said that you had a chief who said proactively police and mm-hmm. everything I, you know, I've listened to other interviews you've done, episodes you've done on the podcast and that seems to be kind of your theme is Mm -hmm. you wanted, you you said you didn't want to just sit around and react. You wanted to proactively. And so the one thing I just want to mention at the top is you have a a lot of expertise and experience in dealing with gangs. So take Mm -hmm. me through how you started and how that brought you into working with gangs and then your depth of knowledge to the point where you actually now teach classes Mm -hmm. to officers. Yeah, it was well, same thing. It was the idea of not sitting around and waiting because it, it's terrible when you respond to a stabbing or a shooting or any type of violence and you're seeing the effects that one human being does to another. And it's really bad when you see it and you think, hmm, if we could have made a, an arrest yesterday of the same guy that stands here every day selling, you know, while it's a drug charge and a lot of people I won't get into all that, but a lot of people don't necessarily support um, drug enforcement. When you do it the right way and you focus on the violent people, it, it goes away. That like If that guy would have been arrested the day before, he wouldn't necessarily be there to commit that violence. And so I saw the trend was gangs were the ones that were committing the violence. And it was early on that we were seeing the spread of gangs in the South. And when I would ask around and you know, senior ranking officers, detectives would tell me, you know, shut up rookie or, you know, shut up. Don't worry about that. That's not the real problem. They're just a bunch of wannabes. And that was the term, you know, that was used a lot. And I was noticing that that's who we really had our problems with were were guys who had bandanas or what we would call flags in their pockets. They've got certain tattoos that I'm seeing. They're all kind of yelling the same thing. Why can't I walk into a room and have some you know, hardcore detective, give me a full briefing on these guys. And we didn't have that. So it was, it was kind of like, we can focus on the gangs and drive down the violence, but nobody seems to have a whole lot of information about that. 
So I just started talking to the actual gang members. And since, you know, I don't know how to shut up once I start talking, I just build rapport with them. And through those years on patrol, I was on patrol for a few years before I went to a gang unit. That's why I started learning. I would ask them, Hey, what does this mean when everybody yells bees up, you know, and they do a certain hand sign? It's like, what does that mean? And, and luckily a lot of the guys would laugh and tell me, what does it mean? Well, it just means bees up means like I'm a blood and this is really good. You know, so hand signs up above the waist are good. Mm-hmm. And that means that's basically like the gang or the set they're with anything thrown below the waist or thrown like in a downward motion means bad. So if I roll up on the block and everybody's yelling bees down, you know, where they're throwing the bee hand sign down below their waist, I know they're crips or, or rivals to the blood set. So I just started learning it that way. And then, as I had more freedom to work on these district teams where they just pick a couple of motivated officers and they say, okay, focus on this neighborhood and, and break up this violence. That gave me a chance to start actually developing informants on patrol before I ever went to a gang unit. And so once I started developing informants, then the knowledge base, it, it, it was like having a personal retainer that I could just ask questions constantly like, Hey, why do you have this symbol? What does this symbol mean? What are your codes of conduct? And then I started looking at, actual documentation that gang members have to carry around. It's like a lot of our bloods, they would call it Inglewood. So they would actually have paperwork on them that has all their codes they have to memorize, their hit them ups, you know, when they greet somebody else. Like so it's tapping into all this knowledge. And the more I learned, the more information I could get out of others. Mm-hmm. So it just worked a cycle that way. So it wasn't going to classes necessarily back then. It was learning straight from various gang members. And we have a lot of different gangs. So my, my knowledge spread very quickly just because we have so many different gangs operating in the South. And you said gangs started to develop in the South so that it's a relatively recent phenomenon compared to cities like L.A. or New York or Chicago. Yes. So our, our gangs that are here, like I'll refer to them as nationally recognized gangs because that's where they're, that's where they're from. So our bloods and our crips originated out of Los Angeles. However, about 1993, New York inmates in Rikers Island decide to start their own United blood nation. Mm. So they're almost like replicating what was going on in LA out of New York that spread all over the East coast. So we actually have sort of like two areas of origin filtering into all over the South, starting, you know, basically from New York all the way down to Florida. Our Chicago-based gangs like Latin Kings, Gangster Disciples, Maniac Latin Disciples, Vice Lords, all the Chicago-based gangs, a lot of them are here as well and all throughout the South. So when I'm teaching gangs, like you mentioned earlier, I've developed multiple courses for citizens, for patrol Mm -hmm. officers, for investigators, one-day class, two-day class, five-day class, it, it gets into all the facets of those multiple gangs, but it's because our population shifts. So we're having people move here who are already established gang members. And it's like starting their own franchise here and they can recruit and have as many people as they want because to them, it's an untapped area as well as people here getting arrested, going to prison. And then they get connections within prison with someone in a gang that they like how they move. They like the effects of that gang. They get recruited and then they come back home after a year or two or whatever. And then when they come back, they're now like a quote unquote made man or they're you know brought home. So now they're in that gang and they start recruiting. Let's talk about recruiting and the subheads under recruiting are ages. Mm-hmm. So I've noticed, you know, I used you, I did watch the movie. Uh, you recommended 
MS-13. So Mm -hmm. kids can get recruited as young as eight. It also seems recruiting happens at the schools, Mm -hmm. at the juvenile detention. Recruiting can be, well, why am I telling you? (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. I I know what you're doing. You're bracketing me in and going, listen, when you you answer this question, just answer this question. Don't go off on a tangent. What I want to get, it's so fascinating and I think it's fascinating to everyone. And that's why we have so many TV shows and movies. And when you talk about the signs, what did you call it? Bees up? Oh yeah. Yeah. Bees up. That's for blood. Bees up. (laughs) Bees up. So I just, I mean, I want to know more about that. So, and you know, the colors, the flag, you call them flags? Yes. So bandanas, yeah, are called flags. So a lot of times, like when I'm teaching it, that's what I tell people, to use those terms. So if, if a patrol officer is listening or a detective or whatever, when they encounter a gang member and they say, um, whatever, I got to remove your flag from your pocket, when they call it a flag, that immediately lets that gang member know you're already plugged in, like you already know what, what's up or you know, you know what's going on. If, if you're explaining your action as much as you can, you know, if you can explain your actions, then they get a read on that officer. And it's always, you know, just always showing respect and explaining your actions. And, and, and when you do that, you can also say, I'm removing your flag. And they may be nice enough to actually explain to you, like, yeah, I appreciate that, <laughs> you know. Well, so you bring up a, a thing I hear over and over and over again. And I, I, lear- I did interview a gang detective in this area over a decade ago. So I have like a tiny minuscule understanding based on that and all the stuff I've heard you do. But when you talk about this respect, it seems mm-hmm. odd to use the word gang member and respect in the same sentence since they mm-hmm. are some of the most violent mm-hmm. people in our society. Now, I understand what you're doing. You're trying to build relationships in a, in a preventive manner, right? Mm-hmm. So what, so tell me what you mean when you say respect. Yes. So I, that's literally what, in, in my world, respect means respect. Now, some gang members would say they want everyone to respect them. And really what they mean is fear. Oh, so some people would be like, you know, yeah, you better respect me. Really what they're saying is they want everybody to fear them. I mean, when I teach it and when I'm talking to people, I'm telling them, if you show respect, it should be reciprocated by most gangs. Now the situation dictates. So I've had, you know, as I'm teaching, I've actually had other jurisdictions send their gang unit officers to my classes. And for some of them, it's an eye opener because they have been doing gang work in a very old mentality where it is us versus them. So they look at it in a mode of anger, like, oh, we're, we're just going to go out there and arrest all these dudes and very in a demeaning manner. So I've, I've heard some of those officers, like it breaks talking about, oh, I arrested this guy and I got a gun off of him. And then they start you know, talking about their use of force and almost like boosting their own ego up. And I've been in plenty of uses of force and all that. I just, but when I'm teaching, I'm explaining to them, it is the respect mode like that where you can make the arrest and still talk to them about the decisions they're making. And if you stay neutral and you don't show anger or a celebration that they're going to jail, you're showing them respect from one human being to another and saying, yes, I just chased you in the cut. We just fought. I got the, you know, whatever revolver out of your pocket or whatever. And this is why I had to do what I do. This is why you got whatever elbow strikes or whatever the the use of force was. But at every turn, you chose that path. You chose to run. 
You chose to assume I didn't know to cut. You chose to assume I wasn't fast enough to catch you. Now you know that we, we handled it the way we did. However, man, you're, you're going to jail now. I've got to charge you with all this stuff. When you could have stood still, followed the commands, and also, guess what? I'm glad you didn't try to pull that revolver. What if I would have had to use deadly force? And, and in the past, I've had those conversations. Some guys are like, you do what you got to do. I said, yeah, but you don't always die when you get shot. So would you choose to be in a wheelchair the rest of your life because you chose to run, that sort of thing? But it opens up conversations where guys are angry and mad because they're going to jail. So if an officer is celebrating it and high-fiving people and, and that sort of thing, their anger is now directed towards that officer very specifically. Okay. And in this era right now, a lot of younger guys are conditioned to completely hate the police and almost be supported by what they're seeing on social media, news coverage, that sort of thing. And maybe what they're hearing from people who have never been the victim of violence or, or grown up in a neighborhood where the police are needed every day to check that violence. It's, it's when I say respect, I mean like legitimate respect the way you would show another human being dust them off, you know, like, like try to take care of them as best you can and, and explain to them. I, I will react to whatever you do. So if you are not violent to me, you'll never see violence from me. Nobody on the block will see violence from me. Yeah. You could, you could argue that's how every police interaction should be. And it is. I mean, it's the <laughs> basics. I think that what happens when someone says you're on a gang unit or you're on a unit that has to focus on gang members. One, if someone's knowledge is suffering in the gang, now they're at a deficit. So if they've got a weak ego, you'll, you've heard it on our episodes, probably where Ski and I talk about being ego free. You just, you don't have an ego anymore. You have to, and it takes time. I mean, but you just have to just like push it aside and be like, oh, well, you know, some guy's going to crack on my features. They're going to make fun of me. Like that's part of gang work. You know, don't, don't let it get to you. That idea of if you've got the gang knowledge, if you know how to handle someone, you shouldn't be roped into these really immature conversations of arguing and calling names and not, none of it ever works out right. So it's a, it's a means to an end. It's a tool. So that, and so one of the things I learned is the, the gang detective I interviewed said it's a kind of a preventive unit. We're, we're out there as, as a presence. We are not, you're not out there answering 911 calls, most likely. Mm -hmm. You're out there so that they see you, mm -hmm. they know you, trust you, but you're also there as a deterrent. And then if something goes down, you're there to make an arrest. Yes. Yeah, exactly. All of that. It's, it's trying to change sometimes the perception that gang members may have on their last encounter with a police officer. So, I mean, because everybody wears the uniform, usually if a patrol officer goes up and, and is heavy hands or, or known as being heavy handed in the neighborhood, then everybody's going to either start, start plotting on that officer specifically mm. or the next encounter they're going to think, well, you're going to do me the same way the last person did. And so a lot of times the, the gang units that are really good at what they do can kind of set a really good example for police officers because they're encountering gang members daily. Yeah. I mean, that's, if you're a really good gang unit, they know who you are, you know who they are and you're there all the time encountering them. That's what I mean about building that reports. It's, I mean, I got one hand, you know, to pick you up off the ground. I got the other that can put handcuffs on you. Mm -hmm. You know, so when, when you're talking to gang members and saying, you ever tied a tie before? Have you ever gone on a job interview? Like who's, who's showing you your future and the future they're showing you is prison or the hospital 
you know, or the grave. Like I'm trying to show you a way out and you can listen to me now, or you can listen to me a year from now or six years from now, but all your friends are either going to be shot, killed, uh, going to prison, you know? So, but I can tell you a way out. It's called having a job. I mean, that's, that's what everybody does. They work. You know? And you're talking, potentially you're talking to someone who is a teenager. Some, well, yeah, now we're in our second generation. So I could be talking to a 14 or 15 year old and encountering them and they have guns on them and they're shooting people and they're committing murders. Or I could be talking to a 35 year old who is still in it for whatever reason, because they're higher up, they've made a little bit of money off of it or whatever, and still talking to them in the same way. Like you're 35, but pretty much you're, you're cooked. You know, you're not going to change what you're doing. And so when, when people move here, like I had a guy that was a, a five deuce Hoover Crip, he moved here from another city out in California and he was older. And we had that conversation. As soon as I started in a nice way, checking him, you know, he was like, Oh, Oh, cause he thought he was in the South and nobody knew about one, his gang and that nobody would know how to talk or whatever. So I just explained to him, like, you're, you already are on my radar. Like we already knew about you the second you touched down to also let him know you're in a city that people actually cooperate. And so hmm. if you can give that impression that you're in, you're in a city that you're not going to be able to get away with stuff the way you have in the city you came from in a very polite way, like, Hey, I'm, I'm giving you the heads up. I could have stayed quiet and let you commit some really stupid crimes. And then when I arrest you, impress you with all of our knowledge and then you go to prison or I'm giving you the heads up now as, as you're in our city, just conduct yourself in a professional way. Like don't, don't come in here trying to set up things and think that you're going to call shots or commit murders or violence or anything. Mm -mm. I mean, you can, but now you'd be really stupid to do it since I've explained everything to you. And he was like, no, nah, you know, I, I appreciate it, man. I appreciate it. It's like, oh, you're, you're in the South. Everybody's nice you know, until you make me not nice. But yeah. right. So I did mention the recruiting. Tell me how they recruit. It can be either through family members. It can be through school. Sometimes you can get exposed through school in a jail. It's like once someone gets arrested and they're waiting for the court date, they may be sitting in jail for a week or two or a month or two. So they can get kind of what I say infected by then. Now you've got social media so present in everybody's life. You could literally have a kid living 20 minutes from a major city, see things on like Instagram live, like of a party or, you know, just this, this lifestyle, this sales pitch about having a lot of money and guns. That person can now travel from their hometown into the city hang out with these gang members, then get, get recruited or get brought home or whatever, you know, they go through their ceremony. There's really two major ways once somebody wants to join and that's either getting jumped in or if they already have family members in the gang, they can potentially get blessed in like a legacy. Right. So the, most people now want to get jumped in that's male and female. I believe I know what you mean. Mm -hmm. Tell me what jump getting jumped in means. So for most gangs, and it's this is really prevalent in a lot of the blood sets and, and crip sets and Sorreño and Norteño sets that they're all flowing out of California. Um, but it's basically, you know, it can be 30 seconds, a minute, minute and a half. There's certain time frames, but and certain numbers of members. So when the when the recruit is joining, there may be three three gang members that beat on that recruit for like 31 seconds. If they're an East Coast blood set, their their time limit may be 31 seconds. And all that recruit does is absorb those punches 
they can move around and, and that sort of, it looks almost like a fight, but sometimes they're not fighting back. Then other jump ins, they have the opportunity to be able to fight back. So it just depends gang to gang, uh, who decides whether you can swing punches or not. Basically, if, if you study sociology and you study our rites of passage in society, that's all it is, is a rite of passage for them into the gang. So the jump in looks brutal, much like a mosh pit used to look back in the day. <laughs> and then you realize everybody's friends. And once the jump in is complete, everybody starts to hug them. And I love you. So now you have this, what feels like a family connection. And you feel like I'm, I'm becoming an, uh, if you're young, I'm an adult now, or I'm, I'm an equal to this rank in the gang, like this entry level rank, this little homie or whatever the entry level rank is. Well, the the documentary you had me watch, as I said, MS-13, I mm-hmm. would not call that a, what they showed, mm-hmm. 30 seconds is mm-hmm. a long time if you're getting beaten up. And yes. these are sometimes, I think in the doc, they said eight, 10 years old, that can be that young. They're getting beaten. They're, they're not just mm-hmm. having so, a good time. <laughs> yeah. So I haven't seen in my experience that young for, for a beating. Okay. The youngest I've seen is probably 15, 14 to 15. We've had some young, young guys as young as 13 that are already in the gang and committing violence. I just haven't been able to see that, what their ceremony was or whatever it was for that young. All right. So when you say you watched a beat-in, you're not talking about in person, right? This is on video? I'm saying that I've seen them from data extractions, from phone, social media, informants, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, so there's there's also, I believe, sexed in. That's for the mm-hmm. girls? Yes. So the, the third option, that one kind of is not as prevalent as it used to be. Uh, but it was sexed in and it was where the gang was recruiting females. And then part of that recruiting is they would say you could get sexed in. Well, at the time, a lot of girls did not want to fight. And and this was, you know, we, we saw it pretty prevalent 10 to 15 years ago. And so what would happen is a young girl would think that she's just going to have sex with one guy. And, and in her mind, sex may be like, like what you would just say, pretty basic. And then she's at a party and they're like, all right, we're going to do this. And the next thing you know, she's in a back room and there's three or four grown men in there. And a lot of times they've given her alcohol or a little bit of weed or something. And then what goes from she's thinking she's just going to have sex with one guy to really horrible stuff by, you know, two or three guys or even one guy, but it becomes something that she did not want. Um, So that's how I first heard about it was taking reports and talking to young girls that that happened. And then they quickly realized I've been lied to the whole time. And this is a criminal gang, you know, like it's, it's a sad awakening for them. Now I will say that other gangs heard about that, like those type of rituals and they would check them and be like, no, you're not going to be doing sex in here. There are certain rules, even gang, you know, most gang members are like, nah, like we're not, we're not doing that. Like you're not going to be sexing in girls. Okay. So that one, I have not heard a whole lot of that anymore. So you're having girls, females joining a gang, they, they want to be seen as an equal. So they're getting jumped in. They're taking punches to the face. They're now carrying guns and they're shooting people. Okay. So when officers are out there searching women and you'll see videos on, on YouTube of people yelling at officers and saying, you can't search her. She's a female. They can, you know what I mean? Like that, they have to, there's plenty of examples 
of women killing men with firearms because they were searched improperly or um, not searched at all. And as the officer's approaching, the firearm comes out and, the, and they're shooting him. We can't just assume, oh, well, well she's a female. She's not going to commit violence. Like, sorry, but in, in our line of work, every, everybody's capable of committing violence. Do, do they also, as a rite of passage, have to commit a crime? So what you said earlier, I know you said, I'm going to have the 15-year-old do the murder or the robbery because they will not go to prison. They'll go to juvenile detention. Mm-hmm. So is committing crime part of the initiation process or it's just your job once you're in the gang? It, it can be. Every Think about every gang differently. So, so you've referred back to MS-13. So now that you've seen a documentary that goes in depth with their protocol, you can't judge every gang that way. So MS may say you get jumped in and you have to commit violence. Or they may say you got to commit three acts of violence against our rivals or whatever. Then you could have eight trade gangster crips that are like, you get jumped in and we're good. Or, or someone could join, say, uh, Latin Kings, and it, it may not be anything like that. It may be you've got to memorize all of your kingism, you know, or you've got to learn all of these protocols because we are we are an elevated organization, you know, that that sort of thing. Or like gangster disciples are more about growth and development, and they rebrand, and it's more about having an enlightened mind and being intelligent, but also being capable of violence against your enemies if necessary. But it just depends on each gang. Do you have incidents that you can talk about, stories, people that you remember that stick with you in the gang unit? Yes. Um, so you, you end up seeing people grow up. And Ski and I have talked about it a few times, either on our podcast or when we've done like some guest spots elsewhere. You meet gang members or you meet kids at 12, 13, 14 years old, and then they join the gang. And then you watch and and you're doing everything you can, if you can. I mean, sometimes you, you may not know them on a first name basis. You just kind of see them around the block, but then they join and then you have an encounter with them and then you talk to them. So like there were, there were three guys when Ski and I were actually on the gang unit, we detained them. They were very young and they were very small in frame, you know, their, their stature, but we were talking to them. We had to circle them and get them to sit on the curb. We had already been dealing with them. They were doing shootings that we thought of. we thought they were involved in shootings. They were definitely doing street robberies. So they were kind of starting to be known as a major threat among other gangs. But as we're talking to them on the on the curb, they're still younger guys. I mean, they're probably, I don't know, 16, 17 at the time. But I was explaining to them the cycle of events they were caught in that we are probably within six months of one of them, if not all of them, being shot or incarcerated pending a, a murder trial or a shooting trial. Like that is the next six months of your activity. And we talked for quite a bit about it. And we didn't have any other charges on them or anything. So they got up and they left. But within probably two months of that encounter, one of them had already been shot and the other two were tied into a murder. So when we're talking about encounters and rapport building and being able to try to predict, it's almost like the weather report, you know, like you know the storm's coming. And then on the flip side of that, uh, you can watch people grow up, get involved in a gang. Maybe you have direct contact with them to get them out of the gang and talk about how to get out of the gang, or they just do it on their own. And so I have, I've been around long enough that I have encountered, you know, one gentleman that had a wife, three kids, got married, like had a job, 
and we had to encounter him and talk to him about some things in the past. And it was nice to see that, that he had gotten out of that. And he was in a very violent gang, had the opportunities to commit a lot of violence. Things changed. He fell in love and it was almost like removing someone from a cult, you know, or an ideology. Right. He just said, I, this life is not what I want. I want her. I want, you know, a home. I want to, I want to work. I want to pay bills. I want to be left alone. And I think a lot of that is the, the brain just being like, I can't deal with the anxiety. It, that was his awakening in other words. And, and there are a lot of, I don't get into specifics because I don't necessarily okay. want, you know what I mean? But, but there yeah. are a lot, I will say this to anyone who's listening who is in law enforcement and they do gang work or any kind of specialized unit like that. Remember all the good stuff like that. When, when people are getting out of the gang, when they're doing something good, if you can pat them on the back, tell them what a good job, show them the way. If you can, if you got to show them how to do a job interview or whatever, do it. Like, like let at every turn, let them know that you're there to basically get them out of that ideology or that mindset. Well, which also brings up the question I've heard it been, you asked this, you know, I didn't know if someone could actually get out of a gang. Mm -hmm. It's like the mafia. <laughs> yeah. They keep pulling me back in. So, yes. But you can get out. Every, every gang is different in that sense. Now the tr current trend probably in the last five or six years that we've seen is that enough gangs are realizing if they expand too quickly, then they're taking in weaker leader or weaker uh, members. And so those members can be like turned into informants or if someone stays in the gang long enough and they get disgruntled and they don't make rank or they start to just, you know, it's like any organization. If you stay in one spot long enough and you get passed over for promotions, you're going to get disgruntled. Then your coworkers are going to be like, why do we want to keep this guy around? He now knows more of our dirt. If we're going to go put in work or we're going to go do a shooting or act of violence or robbery, Nobody wants to take this person mm -hmm. the same way in the workforce. Nobody wants to work with someone like that. So some, some gangs have what they call putting down your flag or laying down your flag. So it basically means you're not, you're not being disrespectful. You're not leaving on bad terms. The gang basically says, yeah, you, you can kind of retire. You can move on where they don't necessarily like that is what we call set flipping or pancaking from one set to another. So you may have someone who is a blood, and within the blood movement, you could call it, there are multiple nations. And then those nations are multiple sets, just like we have the U.S. and then we have states. So when I say set, S-E-T, that's all I'm referring to, is like a state within the U.S. So within blood nation, you could have like the United Blood Nation, nine tray could be a set. Within that set specifically, they may have the ability to say, yeah, you can lay down your flag, you can put down your bandana, and walk away. That may be because of family problems. That may be because they're getting older and they really don't want to keep up that lifestyle and they haven't really made any enemies within the gang. They let them go. Now, if they flip, like I said, or they pancake out from say like nine tray to right. sex, money, murder, or another blood set, then that could be bad. And, right. and, and members are like, Oh, you, you basically are leaving us. You're not leaving the gang world. You're going to another set because you don't like us within this own. And that's yeah. <laughs> where you can see, you can see feuds that could potentially start. So how much get of the violence is gang on gang? Mm -hmm. How much of it is gang member on society and how mm -hmm. much of it is within the gang? 
So the first one's sixty three percent. The second was twenty seven percent. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> I don't even remember what I asked you first. No, it's I all right. Heard, I don't. I, I've heard you pull this on Mike the Cop. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> no. I, uh, usually the cycles of violence that you, or, or or any violence you'll see in a, in a city, usually with a gang member, is interpersonal. So it'll be one gang member who does not like a very specific other gang member. And so they may run across each other at a gas station, at a club. A club's really bad in that sense. So they see each other. If they got access to a weapon, they draw it and shoot. Plenty of club shootings where people are pulling guns out in the middle of a dance floor and just having to shoot out like it's, you know, Scarface really? from the 1980s. Yeah, yeah. Um Oof. That and you, that's a trend all over the U.S. Um, but that's usually interpersonal. That's kind of hard to to break up unless you're really plugged into a gang and you've got informants working and they tell you. You've got to write that. You got to ask the right questions. But if, but if an informant says, "Yeah, my buddy, whatever, you know, this dude hates this guy in this gang," just so you know, when they see each other, it's going to be on. So now you have to focus on those two guys and how you're going to break up that. The other question, so the other part was gang versus society. So the old like uh, rumor, urban legend, if you're driving down the street and you flash your headlights at night, or if you flash them back, it's a gang member. They're going to kill you. Like I've heard that one. I still hear over and over when I teach um, like citizens, you know, gang awareness classes. Usually Usually gangs are not trying to commit violence on just a random citizen for the most part. That doesn't mean that when you get robbed on the street, you're not getting robbed by a gang member. That's they're, they're trying to get money. You know what I'm saying? So if the citizen has money, that's who's getting robbed. But for the most part, like most gang members are not just going to walk up to a random citizen in a gas station and shoot them or beat them up or, or stab them. Now that doesn't mean if you, you run across a gang member and they get mad at you, that violence can, you know, is going to happen. Now, if you go back and look at Gangster Killer Bloods, or, or they rebranded as G Shine, but you have GKB out of New York in the mid '90s when they started their set, that was what they did. They were on the subways attacking citizens, and the whole reason they did that was to just spread fear. And so they would cut you across the face and give you what was called a buck fifty. Ugh. So a lot of times it would be with exacto knives or razors that you could carry in your mouth between your teeth or between your gums. And then you just spit it in your hand, cut, and then put it back in your mouth and walk off. So when that was going on, that set this precedent of, if we do this to random strangers, imagine what we're going to do to you if you're our enemy. That, that's, that's set specific. But, but usually, for the most part, the current trend has been not, not messing with the average citizen unless they have money or they run a business and they're going to rob the business. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So when you were talking about cutting the face on the subway, what years are we talking? That was, I think, like around 98, maybe. Somewhere around there. Okay, because I was living in New York okay. then. Yeah. Yeah, so when, so in the mid-90s, so, so starting around 93 to about 98 was the largest growth we saw in United Blood Nation, like in, within the New York area, but then it began to spread. So by the early 2000s, it's down in Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. Now, whether they were doing proper documentation, that's agency dependent, but, mm-hmm. but yeah. And you, you flash forward now, you're talking about 20 years later, they're everywhere on the East coast. 
So a lot of agencies say, well, we don't have gangs. That's only because your people don't know what they're seeing or, or experiencing. That's twofold. If I'm a sheriff or a chief and I don't get my people trained up, then you don't identify a problem. I don't have a problem until you really do have a problem when your violence is through mm -hmm. the roof and the news is saying, mm -hmm. interesting, you say you don't have gangs. However, we know this graffiti means whatever, rolling 60 crips. And this graffiti means, you know, bloodstone villains. When I talk to higher ups, chiefs, sheriffs, I explain to them, don't avoid the problem in this sense. Do the best you can to identify and have a plan to address it. It's actually a lot easier problem to address than say drunk driving fatalities. You know, you're, all you're going to do is disrupt an organization and you're going to cause so much problems within that organization. They go into self-preservation mode. So your violence is going to go down. If you hide and say, well, we don't have any gang documentation, therefore we don't have a gang problem. That's not true. And it may take a year or two, but you'll, you'll see the violence go down. And you referenced graffiti mm -hmm. and we've all seen the graffiti. That is to show that they have control of that territory. It can. Yes. And, and it's just, it's reading the graffiti top to bottom, left to right. So it's just like reading a book and, and most gang graffiti, depending on where you are, California's got a really, really interesting vibe when they do graffiti. It may be a little harder for the average person to read. In the South, the trend has been, and I get you know graffiti samples from all over. So people send me something and say, hey, what is this? Most gang graffiti is legible. So you can read it. It could be ETGC, eight trade gangster crypts. And it may just be ETGC with an eight and a number three. And that's it. And they put it up on some side of some building or something. But usually it just means their presence. Now, if you see ETGC one day and then the next day you come back and it's crossed out or what we call like X'd out, and then you may see BSV, you know, Bloodstone Villains or whatever. So now you know you got an eight Trey Gangster Crip presence and they're being crossed out or X'd out by Bloodstone Villains. So if you're a patrol officer, now you know you got two gangs and they don't like each other. Because you can literally have two gangs that get along. There's no beef historically or no problems. So you may see graffiti up on the wall of two or three different gangs. And if they're not crossing each other out, that lets you know they're peace, peaceful, you know. Okay. So if you had to push. But if they're crossing each other out, then are they going to, is there going to be violence? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's like, it's like reading the weather pattern. So if I'm, if I'm a police leader and I have proactive assets, drug units, gang units, whatever you want to call them, street crimes units. Hey, well, why, why aren't you in this neighborhood now? And I better be able to walk into a room and say, I want to know every known documented Bloodstone villain member. I want to know every known eight tray gangster crip. Who lives in that area? One, do we know who did the graffiti? And then two, who's got eyes on that area? Oh, well, an entire apartment complex? Well, then I want to know two or three people in that apartment complex that are going to provide information. And that's where you build sources. It can be through a telephone call. How, I'm, I don't want to get into too many details, but you develop sources within a neighborhood and it can be an 87 year old grandmother or, you know, a 20 year old mother of three kids working and trying to make ends meet. And all they got to do is peek out of their window and watch that area and say, yeah, every Friday night, if you want to see them do what they do, be here Friday night. So now if I've got at proactive assets, I'm going to tell them, Hey, be in this neighborhood, set up surveillance, do your, do your thing and catch some people with guns, catch some people with warrants, whatever. Start making arrests and make that area so hot. One, nobody wants to put graffiti up. Two, they don't want to worry about their 
enemies, they want to worry about self-preservation. They want to worry about themselves. I don't want to go to jail tonight. And my buddy just got arrested last Friday night. I'm not going to come to this spot next Friday. Or you, when you make the arrest as a unit, you tell them, hey, I'll see y'all guys next Friday. And as a matter of fact, <laughs> switch it up. Make it Wednesday. We'll pop you on Wednesday too. Like we Just understand this area is not going to be the way it is. You got to find a new area to hang out. So you're just. But doesn't know. that just move the violence around? Of course it does. And guess what? Oh. <laughs> if, if that's my district or my area, sorry, but all I want to do is get the violence away from here. It's somebody else's okay. problem. I can't, I can't reprogram their brain to not do what they do in the moment. But what I can do is when the neighborhood gives me information and we act on it and the next week or two weeks later, they're not hanging out there. Guess what the neighborhood does? Gives you more information when the problem begins again. And when it doesn't, you just did what you're supposed to do. And if it's a neighborhood where people are happy and they love living there, now kids get to come back outside and play, right? And those neighborhoods, when that goes on, they're not, the news cameras aren't putting, you know, the microphone in their face and saying, what do you think of the police, right? Some of the most violent neighborhoods, the citizens would tell you if they could, they want us there. So that's just an example of how it, it is. It's true. I'm not solving the world's violent problem or gang problem. But I can guarantee you they won't be hanging out there in that parking lot or that area the next week. And if they do, they're really, really dumb. And they do sometimes. It takes a while until you make the last arrest of like a crew of five or six people. And they're just like, oh, y'all are serious. Well, yeah, of course we were. We're actually playing fair. We told you don't come back here. And yet you did it. Like, this is crazy. Like, here's an idea. Pick another city to go hang out in. And you might thrive. But here, you're not going to thrive. And you've mentioned informants a few times. I know sometimes you say source, not informant, mm-hmm. but my mind and an informant is someone you've gone in recruited and who's wearing a wire for you. So what does informant mean? And I guess it could mean a number of things. You're right. An informant would be someone who is, is formally what we call like signed up. We know who they are. We refer to them as like a code name or, I mean, it sounds cheesy like a James Bond thing, but it's just, you, you give them a moniker, right? So I'll just make one, it it could literally be road. So anytime we refer to that informant, we would refer to them as road. And we often don't refer to any kind of pronoun or gender. So it stays very neutral so that in case someone did hear us or another officer hears us talking they don't know who our informant is, if that makes sense. Like, I'm not going to walk into a room and go, hey, I got information from Road, and he said his cousin Mm -hmm. who lives at this apartment, well, now I just outed the informant in front of another law enforcement agency or officer and what we call dry snitching. Like, then they don't mean to do it. They may mention, oh, well, hey, that unit is working so-and-so. And now that, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's by mistake that that can be said to the wrong people. It also is just a good habit to get into. So, so we may actually be working an informant and other, other units wouldn't even know it. All they want to know is what's the information you've got. And then you have to kind of sanitize the information. Like I said, you wouldn't say this informant's cousin lives in this apartment because now you could out the informant, but an informant, like you're saying, historically is a person working either charges off or working for uh, money within an agency. Okay. I use the word source because a lot of information I would get throughout the years is from a citizen who doesn't like gangs in their area. So I don't necessarily need to know all the ins and outs. I need 
geographic. I need behavioral information. I need to know where I can set up to see them doing what they do, like the lay of the land kind of thing. Or it may be a girlfriend who got punched in the face by a gang member. And just for a week, she's so mad that she's willing to give a bunch of information. She's not an informant. She's not working off charges. She's just so mad. Hey, this is what I can tell you. And then the next week she's back with him and everything's fine. But now I may know more about that organization or him. Well, there there must be a level of danger. I mean, for those people too, Mm -hmm. that girl comes and tells you this for a week and then goes back. Yes. Yes. And And then they find out. mm -hmm. And and that's what I mean about trying to sanitize information too. And, And use the information that I'm, that I'm getting from sources like that is very generic in that sense that it, it may be, this is where the gang hangs out or this is what vehicles they're known to drive or or whatever it is. So it's more of, um, it's just generic information like that. But, but yeah, it, it could cause them some, some real problems. Well, the movie again, but mm-hmm. MS 13, yeah. there was, uh, it was Brenda Paz yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and she was 17 pregnant. She was an informant. Mm-hmm. And then they, said she ultimately went back to the gang, they figured it out, mm-hmm. and then stabbed her to death. Yes. Uh, I, th- I think, if if I remember right, she had actually broke protocol. Uh-huh, yes. That was the protocol. It was like you can never, you can never make contact with anybody she, again. Right. Yeah. She had the guys come into her house. Yeah. They're like, where'd you get the money for this house? Yes. So yeah. it is. it is a very, very dangerous field to be in. And... Sadly, when someone does that, that can be the, the recourse. Uh, it's yeah. just, it, it's horrible. And you, you understand that, like, especially for like MS-13, they went from a very small gang to transnational. And they are all across the U.S. They're in multiple countries now. And it's just going to keep growing. Also, sometimes leaders, either the president of the United States or a sheriff or a chief, doesn't necessarily need to go on the news and say mm-hmm. this gang's public enemy number one. They're the most violent, and we're going to come after them or whatever. I've heard people say that before. Well, if you label MS-13 as the most dangerous gang in the world and all that, and and as a leader, you're you're basically drawing the line in the sand. It's a great recruiting tool as well, and it emboldens the gang to say, "Okay, you're calling us out. Cool. Watch what happens." So there's no there's no need to do all that. If you have a presence of any gang, address it. You don't need to get on the news beating your chest and saying, this is what we're going to do. Like, just go do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Do it professionally and hope that that problem starts to go away. Now, I did want to ask, are the gangs race-based? So the same thing. When you look at the way society <laughs> has changed, historically, gangs were very homogenous. So when you go back and study all these multiple gangs, you learn that usually it's it's one group that bands together against a common enemy or someone who's victimizing them, another gang. So Crips were historically black males. Bloods, black males. Latin Kings originally were like uh, young families that moved from Puerto Rico. And were, you know, so all these different gangs were homogenous. Now, I mean, you're talking about 40, 50 years down the road. And current day, most gangs have open ranks so or open enrollment. So you could literally meet a white male who's a Crip or a white male who's a Latin King or Maniac Latin Disciple or Gangster Disciple or any of these other gangs. Some still ha- hold fast to those. Like some of the East Coast blood sets will say like, like rule number three or rule number five or whatever is like no whites allowed. 
So they may actually still self-segregate and they do as a matter of fact. So when I'm talking to guys and I'm asking them, you know, why do you do that? And like one guy who had worked for me for a long time as an informant is like, cause everybody knows white guys snitch. Now he's an informant who's been working for years. So it's kind of like even, even he had been kind of conditioned to believe this is why we're going to keep, you know, white people out or whatever. Uh, but where other gangs can tap into multiple populations, their numbers can get huge in a city because it's open to everybody. In the long term, 20 years from now, these East Coast blood sets may die out in that sense that they're staying so homogenous they don't open enrollment to other populations. But I would, I would venture to say eventually they will. It's just a matter of time. Enough people have grown up around other people to be like, well, th- this guy, you know, he might be white, but man, we've been best friends since like kindergarten. You know what I mean? Like, so I want, I want to roll with him. Like he's not what you think he is. He's not the stereotype. And that's usually, I guess, how a lot of those get broken down. But now a, a lot of it is open enrollment and not so homogenous. And I'm not sure we touched on this. We talked about recruiting, but what is appealing about a gang to a kid? I can imagine, but Mm -hmm. you're the expert. Yeah. So when I'm teaching this stuff and I won't get too far into the different templates, but it's, or motives, every gang member, when you encounter them, you you have to look at them as individuals and why they joined the gang at 15 is completely different as to why they may stay in the gang at 25. But what draws most people to the gang is something in them that they're seeking out. So I've asked gang members for many, many years, look, what can I do as a police, you know, officer or detective or, you know, whatever, what can I do to prevent a 15 year old from joining a gang? And time and time again, they're like, there's nothing you can do. No one could have stopped me from joining a gang. You can't stop them. Their own parents and family can't stop them. So why do you think you, some stranger is going to come along and stop them? Nothing you can say or do is going to do that, which also tells me, What's their motive for joining? A lot of young people are looking for peers. So your peers at 15 and 16 are a lot more important to you than say your parents or guardians or, or grandparents, whoever's raising you. So if, if peers are the, the ultimate, you know, approval you're looking for, you join a gang, you're looking for acceptance among that peer group. And like I talked about, you get jumped in and people are hugging you. And that may be the first time you've ever heard another human being tell you, I love you. That's sad, but it's true. So now there's a bond that's familial. Like, like now this is my family, much like maybe a cult, you know I mean? Like it's, you're starting to change the ideology. So it could be, they're looking for family. They're looking for money. So you have a lot of younger guys that are, that are broke, that they need money. They're not necessarily going to go into a job. They're going to try and sell some drugs or try to run some frauds or whatever, some street robberies. But once they join a gang, now they've got some resources and some money. Those types or that template are the types of people sometimes that will flip from one set to another. And so you can track them. So it could be that, or it can also be protection or wanting to show the world, you mess with me and I got a whole army with me. Basics, those are, now you got a small percentage that are what you would break down like antisocial personality disorder, like the old psychopath, you know, term. They can't feel guilt or remorse. They love violence or they thrive on it. Now, those cats, when they join a gang, they're going in because they're like, I get get a free pass to commit violence and get rewarded. Yeah. So they're the ones a lot of times in the meetings that people are like, yo, you need to calm down, man. Like, we're not not just going to go in and kill everybody. We're just going to go kick the door in and get what we need. 
if we have to shoot somebody, that's different. But that's the itchy trigger finger who's like, yeah, I'm going to blast somebody. So then you find yeah. out later that, that they're that type if you want to get into the psychology of it. So, and it's not always kids from a broken home. There are kids mm-hmm. from rich mm-hmm. families, you know, oddly enough, there's a story that happened within the last few days. Once this podcast airs, it will be a few weeks old, mm-hmm. but it's this shooting in, is it Marion County, Florida? I don't watch the news. So I have no idea. I mean, if you, if you tell me enough about it, if it's gang related, I can comment. Well, Actually, I don't need you to comment on this specific incident. Mm-hmm. I was more thinking of using it as an example, a perfect example of what happens. So the way the news came out, if I can remember correctly, there was there were three teenagers shot and killed. And then they found the people who did the shootings. They've arrested an 18-year-old and a 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I hear those ages, I think gang. Okay, yeah. And then the information that came out was, let me just read this. They were all in the same car. So this is the sheriff saying all three victims and the suspects knew one another. They were involved in committing burglaries and robberies and had gang affiliations. And he says... Basically, in simple terms, there is no honor among thieves. At some point, these three individuals turned on the three victims and murdered them. Mm. That sounds, you know, when I asked you earlier, is it the violence gang member on gang member? That sounds like it was within a gang. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ga- yeah, gangs will commit some severe violence against their own members because it's interpersonal. Once again, I, we don't put information out like that. If we're working, oh, really? if we're working a homicide or something. We usually don't put anything because it's not necessary because whatever information you put out there, I don't know. It just, it, it can be problematic. So for us, a lot of times we won't go into details about a homicide or, or make any kind of comments like, uh, no honor among thieves or, or any kind of state. It's just us generally our, our agency is, is very, this is what we do. And we don't, we don't spotlight. We're not trying to get out there in front of cameras. It's just, but we do, we're good at what we do. So let's just do that. Okay. How about this? I had these open-ended questions like the things that people have no idea about gangs, like so civilians, let's Mm -hmm. say the things you, no one, people think they know from TV and the wire and all that, Mm -hmm. but what is it that people have no idea? Just how fast it can grow and then how much it can destroy a neighborhood or a family. So, and, and maybe when I said earlier, Gang members aren't necessarily just targeting just random people in society. Could be misleading. But but in that fact that once a gang is present in a neighborhood or, or a city, now you've got people who are fast-tracking to prison because they're part of the gang. And it can be a cousin recruits a friend. You know, that friend recruits another friend. And so you could literally see a group of like 10 guys that are all kind of connected through cousins or brothers or friends. They all start to fast-track into this gang. And two years later, half of them are in prison where they probably would not have been doing that. You know what I mean? Like it's this idea of you're joining a gang that chances are you're, you're going to prison. Like it's almost impossible to get out of that. So to pay attention when we mainstream gangs and act like they're, that it's okay. Like it's quite all right. You know, if somebody's a crip, it's okay. They're, that's not a big deal. Well, I mean, yeah, that's what we've seen. And you can watch Super Bowl halftime show this year or something where I was told like 
people were doing like sea walks and stuff. I mean, I, what's a sea walk? I, like crip walk. Like there's a certain mm. movement they do, but, um, and throwing yeah. up signs. Yeah. So, you know, Lil Wayne was, was for years, uh, in videos, like he and Bruno Mars made a video, uh, mirrors, I think it was called or something. And, and Lil Wayne's in there flagging and, and throwing up bees up and stuff. And I actually like Lil Wayne. I've heard some interviews with him where he stood up to people and said, you know, no, I'm not going to sit here and talk about racism because I was saved by a white cop when I was shot as a kid. You know, I don't know Lil Wayne. I don't know what his affiliation is. I just know when I, one time when I saw that video, I'm just like, man, I really wish that wouldn't happen because now some young person is going to listen to a song that sounds really great. The video is high production. You got Bruno Mars, who's like this pop star with Lil Wayne and it, and it packages everything as if saying everything is fine. It's cool. It's okay. It's okay to be in a gang. And I, I sound old when I say that, but it's really not like it's, it's a fast track to prison. That's what I worry about the most. So if a gang is homogenous and they're only recruiting black males, then that city is going to be making a lot of arrests of black mm. males to break up violence that in fact usually results in a death or murder of other black males in the same age group. So your demographics of gang members committing violence is often the victims and the suspects are the same demographics. So when mm -hmm. people begin to play, you know, on, on racial conflict to sell news channel ads and that sort of thing, you get, you have to look at it that way and go, okay, who's being victimized the most here. And mm -hmm. it's that. And so if you, if you mainstream and, and fully accept that the presence of gangs is, is okay in a neighborhood, it's really not that bad. It really is that bad. It's not serving any purpose for a young person to join a criminal organization. So when I see it being mainstream like that, I do hate that. I hate to see athletes throwing up gang signs and I do hate to, because plenty of young people grew up in my city and thought the exact same way I did and hated having gang members in their neighborhood and hated having to walk around worried about getting hit by a stray bullet or a drive by or bullets coming through their windows when they're literally trying to study because they want to go to college or training to join the military. You know, they're out running and exercising while gang members are popping shots like that. Mm. That's one thing that I think society really needs to know. It's everywhere. It's not going away. And the more you don't support the police and the more you think defunding the police and that the police are somehow the enemy and that they're the problem. It's the exact opposite. And so we have created in society basically a very fertile garden for gangs to grow in every city. And I would also say people need to really pay attention to the presence of gangs as well as who is in charge of police departments and what units they have, because those are the agencies that are going to thrive, the ones that are, that are being proactive. The ones who are not, and I don't want to get into what life's going to be like in 10 years for some of these cities, but it can be very, very, very bad. We are spoiled in society because police departments have been operating so well in the last 20 to 25 years with disrupting violence. And modern medicine has saved a lot of people in hospitals, but the bullets are still flying and they're flying at a higher rate now than they were five years ago or 10 years ago. If society just really understood how gang presence is all over the U.S. and what it does, then maybe they would understand why they need to support 
police departments and why actual gang units and proactive units are not a negative thing. It's actually a positive thing. You will actually save more young black males in a city if the gang is homogenous like that and operating much like they do in a lot of the cities in the South. You'll save young black men by being more proactive. That is a great point. Mm -hmm. That is a great point. Thank you. Well, (laughs) (laughs) what have been the, what are the rewards for you? I have been able to do everything I ever wanted to do in police work and, and more because then I learned more about the department and opportunities. Had I sat back and not really pushed some of my ideas, I wouldn't be as fulfilled. So if, if I had joined the department and all they expected of me was to sit in the parking lot or only respond to 911 calls, then I wouldn't be fulfilled because of the way my brain works and what I want to do. So I've actually been able to be on units where we have seen violence in a certain neighborhood and then set up our own strategy within the officers. Like we didn't get it from a sergeant or lieutenant or something like we as officers said, look, this is the intersection or this is the corner where all this violence is occurring. Three unsolved homicides or whatever. Like, Hey, how are we going to stop this? We all decided amongst our unit and then put the plan in place. And within, I don't know, four or five months, one of the members in that gang had said, man, y'all rained down on us. Like y'all won, y'all won. And we're like, yeah, like that, that, that's what it's supposed to be. That's really rewarding. It's really rewarding to work on a unit to dismantle an entire gang set and stop multiple future murders and assaults that we knew were going to happen if we did not check that set. Uh, homicide investigations and being able to work on unit on a homicide unit that's one of the best in the country and to see your peers absolutely amaze you when you're working a case and going, I, I work with the best people in police work. So I've been very spoiled in that sense, but have loved every minute of it because I've had the freedom to do that. And I've had a chain of command often that supports me if I come up with an idea or there's something I want to do, which is very, very important for anyone who's listening in any kind of command staff position or as people come through the ranks, you got to support one another and check your ego And if a brand new patrol officer comes up with an idea, listen, and if it makes sense, implement it because you're empowering that officer to become a better detective or sergeant or leader in the future. That's the main thing is we don't go into this job because of the money. I walked away from a very lucrative career with a different company when I was in college because I worked for a company in college. I walked away from that because I wanted to be a cop. I wanted to go after violence. And at the end of, you know, My career, I wanted to be able to say, yeah, I didn't. I mean, I ate a lot of donuts, but I didn't. I didn't sit around. Like, I actually went out there and put in work, and that's why I teach. That's why I do everything I can to pass on that knowledge and to show people, be more compassionate, be more thorough. You can take people to jail, but you can still pat them on the back and try to help them out however you can. And 90% of people are going to allow you to help them. Um, So that's the main thing. I've loved it because of that. Well, that is awesome. And is there danger to you? Not in a day-to-day basis like that. Like, I think what you're thinking is like, would a gang come and target me or would someone? Yeah. yeah. Um, I would hope not. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, I don't I don't necessarily want to be all over everywhere. You know what I mean? With my information yeah. out there. Uh, I've always treated people with respect and done everything I could to help people who want to be helped. So I don't necessarily think that. 
but yeah, I mean, I try to stay cautious, but, I, but I also want to speak out because I do want people to know, seek out that training, get out there. You know, if you're, if you're a cop or, or an agent or something like get out there, get after it and just try to stay positive and stay motivated about it. I, I have to believe you've been in some pretty hairy situations. Uh, I have, but I, I've also talked my way in and out of a lot of them too. You know what I mean? Like I have, I have probably talked my way out of a lot more potential violent encounters that yeah. maybe if I would have said different things, then I probably would have been in the mix a lot more, but, but yeah. Well, you have such a nice manner about you. You're very, you're, you, you can, I can tell you have a good heart mm-hmm. and that I'm sure that comes across to whoever you're talking to. And, you know, what you've talked, what you've described is your mission. I think people are going to relate to that. Yeah, I, I hope so. I, I know that the the times that I have gotten in use as a force in front of other gang members and stuff, they, they've been like, why'd you make that guy mad? You know what I mean? Like, like you, you made a nice guy mad. You know what I mean? They Meaning you. Like, in other words, hey, he comes by here yeah. every day. He, he arrests somebody. It's not that big of a deal. Now, all of a sudden, you went sideways on him. And, and we're out here, whatever, tussling in the street. And now, you know, we're seeing a different side of him. Like, why did you make him mad? Like, he's the nice guy kind of thing. There are a lot of officers, though, that are drawn to gang work that are very similar to me. That's what I like. They're motivated because they want to do good. It's not like, oh, I want to go out there and just stomp people or something. That's like, you know, 20, right. 30 years ago, maybe. But I find that most most officers are very similar to me when, when they can be allowed to be that way. I, I did it just because yeah. it's who I was, but. Uh, and I took yeah. a lot, a lot of, uh, ribbing or like, you know, people talking junk to me saying, Hey, you're too nice to people on the street. And I'm like, no, there's no such thing. Like you can always ratchet it up, but you can't get out of the car and yell and scream at everybody and then think that's going to be effective. But no, right. I, I just, so everyone's aware, at least in the South, a lot of the hard chargers <laughs> I've worked with are, are a lot like me. We just like to laugh, joke, be nice to people, and then just go out there and do really good police work. Well, I do want to give you the chance to talk about your podcast and then I will let you go. (laughs) (laughs) The podcast is awesome. I'm going to let you describe it. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the Disruptors podcast with BC and Ski. It's basically the two of us oftentimes interviewing just different guests, but they're guests that we like having conversations with or people that we've, we know are just interesting people. So it could be like the drummer from the Lillingtons, which was a well-known punk rock band. Uh, Tim, he was, he's a great guy and he tells amazing stories about what it was like, but now he is, he works on an ambulance crew and so he's out Mm. there saving lives. And so on that episode, he talks all about how he transitions and, and his awakening during witnessing someone passing away during a collision type of thing. So Mm. stories like that, that, we want people to understand to, to sometimes break stereotypes. I mean, you, you hear us talking about PMA or you hear me talking about staying positive and, and PMA is just an old, basically an old punk rock term that, that was like positive mental attitude. And it's the truth. Like just staying positive, trying to, to entertain people, make them laugh a little bit, but we get serious sometimes. Um, we just had a, I say reformed or a former Nazi skinhead. Uh, I who, listened to that one. Yeah. So, yeah. so Frank Mink, yeah, he committed, some some very horrible violence in his youth when he was a Nazi skinhead. But he talks all about how he got into that movement, how he got out of it, what he's doing today. So you could literally listen to one episode like that that gets pretty serious. And he asks us a lot of really good questions about current police activity or how police current culture is now. And then we can have someone like uh, Yusef Badu on there who is like a situational awareness 
expert. And I love to hear that guy talk. I listen to that one too. <laughs> he talks about body language and, and it's things that yeah. we all know. And it's funny because he's like, that's who he learned it from was a lot of police officers, but, and in the Marine Corps, but it's great to let someone else tell that it's a great guy. And then every now and then we'll have an episode, you know, where we'll talk about a topic ourselves where we, I mean, like one, we were just really completely silly and telling stories about <laughs> ski joining the police department being completely different than me joining. Cause we are, we are, we were very similar or very different when we joined as we get older, we're very similar in our fact that there are certain things we want to do in the business world or certain things we want to do with our, our teaching and, and seminars we're going to be opening up and stuff. But it's funny to think about how just the polar opposites we were. Yeah. We just, we try to have a good time and then eventually we'll get some, some gang members on and some former drug dealers and you know, who knows? We, we like to keep it very broad and it's not just like, Oh, this is a cop podcast or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's not because there's a lot more to us than that. That's a small facet. Um, so, mm-hmm. so a lot of the commonality is music. So at the end of most, most of our episodes, we talk about the music we're listening to currently or recommendations we give. And so it's nice because we listen to so many different types of music that usually the guests, we let them know ahead of time. They're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I like to listen to this. Or it might be some old obscure hip hop or something or death metal or whatever. So yeah. <laughs> usually it's something we like. Yeah. Well, and you're a skateboarder. I, I was. Yeah. yeah. As okay. you get, as you get older, like some people are like, I never really. quit, you know, and I won't get older. Uh, I just knew at a, at a much younger age, I'm not going to take on injuries. You know what I mean? Like it, it can ruin yeah. a military career. It can ruin a yeah. police career. So unfortunately I don't skate anymore, but it's like, there are times when I have dreams of it, you know, where I hear, uh, I hear the wheels clicking or a certain sound it makes on the, on the concrete or the pavement. And it's like, ah, oh, like I still love seeing people skating. I love the culture of it. And it gave a lot to me and saved a lot of uh, my buddies and stuff. And so it, it's always warm and near and dear to my heart, but I don't, unfortunately, I don't, I don't skate anymore. Well, and you did say when you were kind of a, I don't know if you used the word punk, but um, you guys were skating and the cops rolled up on you and the one police officer said, Hey, leave them alone. Yeah. They're just skating and that gave you well you tell the story but go ahead yes yeah it was a um traffic stop so we we were at that time we had been stopped you know a few times by police and harassed and this was you know in the mid to late 80s and the pitch then was like skateboarding is not a crime meaning Mm -hmm. that you literally there were cities that were trying to outlaw skating now as an adult i understand why it was because you you slam on your board fall off and your board hits a citizen or elderly lady. And now she's got an ankle injury, whatever it is. I understand it now as an adult, but I also know kids have to have a release. And at that time in the skateboard culture, we were all coming from divorced families. You know, I'm learning as an adult. Some of my buddies were dealing with very, just a lot of bad stuff, sexual abuse, violence in the home that I didn't even know about then because they were holding it so close, but it was that almost, society's rejects so when we were getting stopped by the police i think at that time the police officers assumed you all are a bunch of troublemakers because the way you look you know this guy's got a mohawk you know this guy's like wearing a t-shirt that says dead kennedy's like what's all that about you hate the politics you know you hate the president it's like oh mm -mm." um (laughs) so so it was a very it was a very like robotic stereotypes we were encountering and then one day we are stopped in my buddy's milk truck. He drive, he was driving a, um, 
an old out of out of service milk truck was his was his first vehicle. He's like 16 years old. And I think we had like minor threats stenciled on the side of it and and dead Kennedys and, and JFA or something. So and we pick up some friends that had bikes, we throw them in the back of the of the milk truck, and the police officers see that and they stop us. And I think they were assuming that the bikes were stolen or whatever. One officer makes contact, he's doing the same routine, he's starting to kind of not be that professional. And then the check-in sees us when we get out of van, sees all the skateboards. And he's like, Oh, they're skaters. Like, don't worry about it. They're not, they're, they're good to go. Basically like that, that means they're good. And then I was like, that's the first time I'd encountered a police officer that seemed to be one, an individual and two was like supportive of us skating. So that really kind of flipped the switch when I was a kid to go, okay, not, not all cops are bad, but that kind of put that thought like, ah, cops are, they're okay. I liked the idea of, can I be a cop and do what I want to do in that sense? And it's the greatest feeling when I go off on skaters and say something about, Hey, if you can't do a kickflip, everybody's going to jail joking, you know, uh, or walk up and just start talking to them or, or see like a kid wearing, you know, a punk rock shirt, like a band shirt or something. And I may say, Hey, tell me about the germs. You know, you're wearing that shirt. Tell me about the germs or whatever, or, you know, you're wearing a rancid t-shirt. I know Rancid. <laughs> Did, yeah, you're yeah, right. Oh, you wear Rancid. You know, and kids are just like, whoa, what? Like, how do you know about Rancid? I'm like, man. <laughs> and that 10-minute conversation or whatever could potentially put that thought in that person's head to say, oh, damn, this dude was pretty cool. So maybe cops are kind of cool. And then they join down the road and they're a true believer and they're actually a really good cop. That cop changed my perspective. So I thank him for it. That's amazing. I mean, that is probably what you're doing for kids right now. I'm trying. So. I'm trying my best, yeah. Well, what, it's a great place to uh, thank you mm-hmm. for being here. Thank you. All, <laughs> taking all this time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me and allowing me to, to talk your ear off and answer <laughs> questions with really long answers. Uh, no, it was great. It was great. I love it. I want to thank BC for his time. Be sure to check out his podcast, The Disruptors with BC and Ski on all podcast platforms and check them out on Instagram. I'll put a link to their Instagram handle as well as an Apple link to the podcast in my episode notes. And I'll include my social media links. I want to thank my listeners, all of you who have been listening from the start and to the many new listeners who have joined over the past few months. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your feedback. My goal is to give law enforcement a place to talk about a very hard job and to give my fellow civilians perspective that you simply won't get in media coverage of the profession. Thanks again. Until next time.